0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: This podcast contains explicit language.
2: So that happened. If there's been one issue that's animated the presidential race this year, and I mean a real issue, it's got to be the future of trade. The Obama administration's efforts to get the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal in place have been met with a lot of resistance. This issue has been central to Donald Trump's pitch to the middle class. And Hillary Clinton, somewhat recently and conveniently, has also come out against the TPP. So great. But here's a question. Anyone have any new ideas? As it happens, yes, Jared Bernstein of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities has a new paper out that promises a progressive approach to globalization and trade. He's going to join us today to discuss it. Meanwhile... Do you get the feeling that the media has given short shrift to Hillary Clinton's actual policy plans? Well, we have some good news if you do. The Huffington Post's own Jonathan Cohn recently spent some time in Brooklyn at Clinton's headquarters and discovered that it has a nuggety wonkish center that's not only the hub of Clinton's campaign effort, but an engine that's reshaping the Democratic Party's whole approach to policy. Next up, our colleague Elliot Nelson, who many of you may know from the HuffPost Till Newsletter, which you should subscribe to, has written a book. It's funny and it's accurate, and you will actually learn things you didn't know about how Washington works. It's called the Beltway Bible, and he's here to talk about how the best place to read it is on the toilet, just like all the other Bibles. Finally, in the past year, you may have started to notice that all of the worst people on Twitter have become somewhat closely associated with a cartoon frog named Pepe. Well, this week, that frog has been designated as a hate symbol by the Anti-Defamation League. And Pepe's creator, Matt Fury, is called in to urge the good people of America and the world to reclaim his creation for good. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Jonathan Cohn, Arthur Delaney, Elliot Nelson, and Lauren Weber. We'll have all of that, but first let's talk about this debate that happened. Hey guys, welcome back to another edition of So That Happened. Your weekly dispatched from the corner of Damned If I Do Boulevard and Fuck If I Know Avenue. My name is Jason Lincolns. I am the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. I am joined, as always, by Zach Carter. Hey, guys. Yes, and um, our good friend and editor of The Morning Email, Lauren Weber. What's up, team? Uh, well, what's up is this week we uh, had the first of three presidential debates at Hofstra University there are in two more Hampstead New York two more and uh, it's in a, it's been an unusual kind of like we we've had a few days to digest the debate and it's been kind of an unusual set of circumstances following the debate where I think everyone in the chattering class sort of deemed Hillary Clinton to be far and away the winner. Uh, the more reliable snap polls afterwards agreed with this. Frank Luntz's focus group agreed with this. But I mm, I I just have this kind of nagging feeling, and maybe you guys. Uh, could talk me down. But I have this nagging feeling that none of that really matters. I feel like Donald Trump was pretty incoherent through most of the debate, but in the first 15 minutes when he was talking trade, that's really all he's selling right now. And it sold it fine, right? Am
3: I wrong? Um, I think I think he kind of looked like a out of control idiot for most of the debate, and that's usually considered bad. Um, <laughs> usually I, in politics, it is twenty
4: sixteen.
3: Um, I, I do agree that that the weakest moment for Clinton was was the trade discussion, and, and it was not great that it the, the debate opened with that for her. But she then spent seventy five minutes just slapping him around the debate stage, uh, and he d- he didn't look good. I mean, it, he just didn't look good, and I I think. Typically, the actual debate performances don't have much of an impact on voter impressions. But the media's coverage of who who they think won, who the media thought won the debate, does have the ability to move things you know, a couple points one way or the other. Um, so I think it was a pretty good night for Clinton.
4: I think this puts us back to pre-pneumonia, you know, whatever that dust-up was, numbers. That's what we're
2: presuming. We've not seen any yes, poll numbers. That... We
4: haven't, but I think that's what's going to happen.
2: Uh there there was sort of this kind of idea that what was happening between the wars here before this debate was that we had hit this sort of lull patch where things kind of felt like it did after Donald, uh, after President Obama boofed his first debate and there mm-hmm. was kind of this sort of like rising enthusiasm for Romney at the time and maybe a, l- a lessening of enthusiasm for Obama. I think that yeah, I think you're right. She slapped she definitely slapped Donald Trump around through the bulk of the debate. Um and maybe that's something that will go to enthusiasm. I was, you know, they set the expectations so low. And in my mind, Donald Trump didn't clear them, save for that trade part. But that's the funny thing about Donald Trump is that he's got 15 minutes worth of good pitch. Mm-hmm. And and then from there, he's got word salad. And this is the first time salad. he was in a one-on-one debate with anybody without a foil to play off against. It mean, kind of went off the rails. Let,
3: let's also times. be clear that the, the stuff that he was saying about trade, the stuff that he has detailed uh, in a white paper for, by his, his campaign advisors, uh, is largely just incoherent strongman promises. I mean, he's just saying, I'll fix it. I'll renegotiate our deals. He's not detailing how he'll renegotiate them. He's not explaining what he'll put on the table to get many countries who we trade with to, to universally do things that are not in their those countries' own interest. Um, you know, that's... It, it, it is still kind of a BS promise, but he does. He did, I think, on, on Monday night, articulately sort of present a vision for why the existing trade uh, status quo is 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 unpopular and not working. And I think that explanation is one that resonates with a lot of people. But it, we should just emphasize that as a policymaker, he's still full of shit.
2: Fair play. Wait, <laughs> so we're talking right now about Donald Trump kind of being bad, but Lauren, what did Hillary Clinton do well?
4: Well, I thought her overall attitude throughout the debate, which is these these claims that you're making are ludicrous. I don't know why I'm bothering my time answering some of them and retaliating with some of his idiotic comments of the past was brilliant. The little shoulder shake she did halfway through the debate, I think, was a, was a gift <laughs> that will live in infamy uh, when she kind of shook off one of the latest blasts he tried to send her way. And I, I just think that overall attitude was huge for her because it it put her above the fray. She looked presidential and I think it ended up giving her the edge.
3: I think it also was kind of emasculating for Trump, right? Yes. Because it was massively emasculating. Yeah. And a big play for his, like, you know, his, his entire political pitch is this very, you know, kind of primate dominance, strong man, you know, defeat lunkheads, or be lunkhead, defeat other lunkheads. I don't know where I'm going with this. Anyway, it was emasculating, and that seems bad for Trump since his whole pitch is like, I'm the most masculine guy it was ever. Funny.
2: It was funny where Donald Trump ended up in this debate because he's, like you said, he's long pitched himself as the straight shooter, the politically incorrect guy who's going to tell it like it is and, not be affa- and be offensive and not care. And yet we got to this part of this debate where Donald Trump in maybe two steps, goes from accusing Hillary Clinton of not ha- having stamina and then complaining that people are running negative ads against him, saying that it's mean. I was like, well, you, you don't get to be the wuss here. You're the, you're the fucking savage no. truth teller. You don't get to be the the wimp.
4: And I think what was huge is nothing really needled Hillary Clinton. She never really got off message. She was able to deliver the line she wanted. She, You know, there were a couple points I think she could have been stronger, but she, she by far was not deterred, which I think is huge. I mean, she didn't have kind of the lapse that we've talked about several times on this podcast about the 9-11 bank speeches issue and yeah. some other weird oh, yeah. reaching things that she's done in other debates that I think have been prodded out of her by in in anger or just you know not as good of prep and this clearly clearly
2: she was ready to go there was no return to the I gave speeches to Goldman Sachs because 911 <laughs> no stuff. that that did so not weird. that sadly did not come up it was so strange <laughs> going into the debate there was so much focus on fact checking because Donald Trump has created this sort of blizzard of error uh this like long running gish gallop of 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 misdirection and incorrection um and there's a lot of pressure, I think, put on Lester Holt right at the outside. At the outset, uh, people wanting him to do real time fact checking. I, I think that if you had actually real time fact checked this debate, it would have added ninety more minutes to the debate. But. How do you guys feel he did? I felt like he was appropriately strong with what he had at his disposal. I think more importantly, he was very good at directing people to answer questions they failed to answer, which to me at a debate is far more important than uh, going back to, you know, your mental Wikipedia and pulling data out to throw at the candidates.
4: I was going to say, I feel like he let them retaliate against each other way too many times. That was my, if that was my major Lester Holt complaint, you know, someone would say something, the other person was like, well, it's my time to talk. And this would go back and forth. The theory there
2: is you let them play though, right? Yeah,
4: you let them play. But I feel like we got less questions, which I would agree with you. I thought his questions were good. So I was a little bummed that we didn't have more Lester Holt appearances, so to speak.
3: I thought he, and I thought he did a pretty good job with the follow-up questions though. I mean, you know, he would ask Donald Trump something, Trump would lie and he would say, well, that's not true. And, and uh, yeah, particularly. there was on, no matt lauer yeah, uh, yeah particularly on the iraq war vote i mean that, that was man that was just my favorite moment of the whole debate though when donald trump was like trust me i had a secret conversation with sean hannity <laughs> the man who is single-handedly promoting my Again. campaign at fox someone news someone called sean hannity <laughs> yeah.
2: someone called sean hannity
3: <laughs> uh. I had a secret conversation with him in 2002 that um, yeah, was just such a great joke uh, yeah, I know. I thought Lester Holt did a good job. I look, it it is really hard to fact check every single thing that people could pull out of their asses at these debates. Yeah. And and look, he when people said things that were like documented lies, he said he called them out on it. Uh and I, I you know, I I think the impression that voters got of of the debate of the candidates was I thought I thought you you got a pretty transparent uh look at the candidates.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I would have Lester Holt back as a debate moderator four years from now. Sure, it's got a bright career that Lester Holt guy. I, th-
4: I think so. I think I think
2: that's maybe we'll work gotta, out maybe someone him. should
3: give him a TV news show, huh?
2: Yeah, maybe <laughs> just maybe <laughs> maybe assuming assuming we're not plunged into a fashion dystopia, things could work out for that guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> guys. Um, uh. So uh, we'll have a few more debates to talk about. Uh, we look forward to talking about those. Uh, in the meantime, Lauren, Zach, thank you. Uh, we have a really great show, and we'll bring that to you in just a second. This is just artifice, me telling you that show is coming. You know that.
5: Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market.
3: I'm Zach Carter, joined, as always, by Jason Lincoln, And we have a very special guest on the phone. He is a senior fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, uh, but he's best known as being the top economic guru for Vice President Joe Biden for several years. Uh, Jared Bernstein, welcome to the show. Well,
6: thanks for inviting me.
3: So, Jared, you have a new paper out with uh, Public Citizen's Lori Wallach. Uh, It's about trade policy, and I think one of the most interesting Sort of facets of this election is the way trade has suddenly become you know, one of the major elements of the national conversation. Um, but I, you know, there are people on both the left and the right who have been very critical of the uh, the, the current sort of trade status quo. Um, how how should progressives be thinking about trade, and how how does your vision of, of, of the you know the types of trade reforms that are needed differ from what we've heard from say Donald
6: Trump? Well, I think Donald Trump has a very uh, much a nostalgic view for a 1950s America in lots of ways. You could talk about that through a racial or religious dimension. But from the dimension of international trade, I think he'd like to somehow uh, put a bunch of toothpaste back in the tube and revert back to an America, uh, or to a world where trade flows were a fraction of what they are now. Um, if you go back to the 1960s, we traded 25% of global GDP. Now we trade 60%. Uh, and, and that's just not, that, that kind of nostalgia uh, it for, for an earlier time is uh, extremely misguided it's not going to happen the goal can't be in my view to restrain or stop globalization it's it's out of the can uh, the goal has to be to reshape it and there I think there's a great progressive agenda one that uh, progressives including Hillary Clinton I must say uh, are not talking about quite enough I think there is a real um, uh, I think there's a real opening for this, reshaping of globalization through trade deals that put workers, as opposed to multinational corporations' interests, at the heart of the trade deals. But that agenda has yet to be really elevated, and that's what we're trying to do here.
3: So, yeah, you hear a lot in this uh, campaign cycle, in particular, people people are very upset about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, this very large trade deal with 11 other Pacific nations um, that the United States may, may or may not approve. Um but other than stop TPP, which you heard from Bernie Sanders, you're hearing it from Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump now. There's not a whole lot of discussion about like what, why you, know, why you want to stop TPP. Even um, so, what what's wrong with the current way that we negotiate trade deals, and what's what's in them that you don't like?
6: Okay, so that's that's two big questions. One is about process, and one is about content. But so I sure. think the process thing is is pretty easy uh, to, to uh, uh, for people to wrap their heads around because a lot of people who who followed this, anyone who follows uh, the TPP, or in fact, you can go all the way back to NAFTA here. Um, we're, we're unhappy with the the idea that the negotiations are all pretty secretive, yeah. and that uh, uh, the, the folks who uh, kind of end up getting a seat at the table uh, tend to be uh, the trade negotiators themselves, uh, and oftentimes um, uh, interest groups, lobbyists, uh, again, corporate interests, uh, for the most part. Uh, even members of Congress uh, don't get to see uh, some of these negotiations until pretty late in the deal. So certainly democratizing the process, uh, a much more transparent process. I mean, it, it, it was once argued, and by the way, I don't think this is a terrible argument. It was once argued that if uh, if you had these negotiations in a more transparent setting, you'd never get anywhere because everybody would be constantly fighting over their their piece of the deal. And I'm sympathetic to that. End of the day, it's just not a democratic process, and one of the reasons people are so skeptical is because the process has been so non-transparent. So that's got to change. I can talk about content, but if you want to take a a breath there and just reflect on that for a
2: second. (laughs) Um, You know, it is interesting. We have found in the past, uh, whenever we write about trade here at the Huffington Post— the audience for this for this material and this topic is vast. It's it's bigger than most people think. Um, it is a, a topic that just has a germane interest to a widespread number of Americans. Do you think that policymakers are perhaps maybe too cocooned right now? And they don't understand how, at street level, uh, all across this country, ordinary Americans are really finely tuned into this issue.
6: Um, if they. You'd have to be kind of under a rock not to be aware of that now. I mean, just the debate the <laughs> other night between Clinton and Trump, there were fifteen minutes on on the issue, and and you know Hillary Clinton quite famously ha- has uh, taken a position against the TPP. That's um, not the position shared by her former employer, President Obama. So, uh, but but I think I so so I think the idea, and it. it, it it, it took a long time coming, but, but here's where we've made a real advance in this debate. It used to be the case that elites on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, basically could tell anyone who was upset about the perceived impact of globalization on, on themselves, on their job, on their family, on their community, uh, the politicians would tell them, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand the benefits of globalization. You don't understand uh, Ricardian comparative advantage. And you know, here's another trade deal that's going to be better than the last one. And it's even got some adjustment and assistance in there for you to make you feel a little better. That sort of um, that, that kind of elitist approach now has um, been pretty broadly rejected. And the problem is, and here's where I kind of agree with with what what you were getting at. The problem is not, there's nothing really there to take its place. Yeah. And so, and the debate was a great microcosm of this, because on the one hand you had Donald Trump ranting incoherently about trade, um, saying things that were factually incorrect, uh, about, um the way imports and exports are taxed. He got that all, 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 all you know, uh, muddled. And, 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 and Hillary Clinton not having, you know, that much of a, uh, that, that, that deep of a response, compared to all the other policies that she talked about for the other hour and a half where I thought she was really deep and very, very persuasive. And so what I think is missing, and and what I'd like to talk about if we have time, is the alternative. That is, a new rules of the road, a progressive approach to globalization, where we take out of our trade deals things that shouldn't be in there, and we put in things that should be. So, yeah,
3: so what do we, how do we fix it?
6: Okay, so... Uh, as I said, there there, there are some things that, that are in trade deals today that really either ought to come out or ought to be very much um, uh, uh, reshaped. And, and and one of them is the investor-state dispute resolution process.
2: Ah, oh, you just ran right at the heart
3: of my argument against TPP. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren has talked about this very famously.
6: Yeah, and you're not, you're not the only one. Sure, sure. You know, ba- basically the idea here, just to make sure our, our listeners know what we're talking about, the idea here is that if you are... An investor in a country that's a signatory to a trade deal and you're worried that your investment may, uh, uh, get taken away from you by some country who, by like some group within a country that doesn't have a legal system that as ours. You need some sort of process by which you can prosecute your case. Uh, the problem is that the uh, process that they've put in place, this ISDS process, is one wherein uh, sovereign uh, laws and taxpayers uh, are exposed um, to a meta-tribunal of basically three attorneys uh, that can override uh, sovereign law and uh, hold captive uh, the taxpayers of the country who the claim is found against. Basically, the way it's set up now, the investment risk uh, doesn't lie with the investors themselves. It lies with the rest of us. Our skin is in the game, not theirs. So we have a simple solution, and that means that uh, investors should have to self-insure against the kind of risk that they engender when they trade with countries with weak legal systems.
3: So they should have to pay insurance instead of uh, letting the public insure them.
6: Exactly. I mean, we have very innovative capital markets. You know, Our trade negotiators say... Um, argue that, that, uh, we never lose an ISDS case. Okay? That's kind of their key argument. And I think that, you know, that, that's fine. That's a great thing. It's good not to lose these cases. But if that's the case, then such insurance should be quite cheap. Uh, and, and so investors should have their own skin in the game. Um, we need to have, uh, let's talk about something that should go into, uh, trade deals. And that's a, that's a chapter with enforceable disciplines, that is, enforceable rules against currency manipulation. Our trade negotiators say, we can't do that, it's just too, uh, too difficult to get that into a trade deal, and, I, and, and we argue that, um that's just been unacceptable.
3: Well, people people do say. I mean, you've heard uh, President Obama and, uh, and and others argue that well, if they put currency pr- provisions, currency anti currency manipulation provisions into, say, TPP, that this would restrict the Fed's ability to do things that are beneficial for the economy. What's what's wrong with that argument?
6: If you believe that argument, then uh, I guess we just have to accept currency manipulation. And what's uh, kind of ironic is that our political leaders. Um, say, we don't. Uh, President Obama, and he's very strong and correct on this, says we must take a strong stand against currency manipulators and push back against what they're up to. And to be very clear, uh, this is a a play in global markets through, through the exchange rate by which you make your exports cheap to us and our exports to you more expensive. So the exchange rate is manipulated by uh, essentially buying dollars in international markets that raises the value of the dollar relative to your currency makes our exports you expensive your exports to 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 us cheap and so it worsens our trade deficit and it hurts our manufacturers you know Donald Trump made the mistake of saying our trade deficit is something like $800 billion. It's actually $500 billion. Yeah. But in fact, it's about, it's, that's because we have a surplus in services. We actually do have a trade deficit in manufacturing, manufactured goods that is about $760 billion. So we need to do something about that. And I don't understand the politicians, and including President Obama, who say, absolutely, we should do something about currency. Inflation. We just can't do it through a trade deal. That's not, if you're going to, if you're going to, um, uh, subject monetary policy to that kind of scrutiny. I don't get why somehow that's uh, a problem in a trade deal, but not a problem outside of a trade deal. It's the same thing.
7: Right. And in
6: fact, the IMF has a set of rules that are widely accepted that identify currency manipulators, uh, because um, the, the whole Federal Reserve thing is is, is really kind of a ruse. Uh, when the Federal Reserve engages in monetary policy, they are... Um, Moving around interest rates in order to stimulate domestic demand through lowering the cost of borrowing. Now, it is true that when you move an interest rate, you affect the price of the dollar. But the Fed's been doing that forever. When you intervene, when you manipulate currency, you're not just tweaking an interest rate. You're going into currency markets, as I mentioned before, and you're buying a lot of somebody else's currency. Let's be very clear about this. When you're doing monetary policy, you're moving interest rates. When you're doing currency intervention, you're buying currency. The whole thing is, is is a root.
3: Right. All right. Well, Jared Bernstein, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, the new paper is – what's the title of your paper, and where can they people find it?
6: It's called um, The New Rules of the Road, a Progressive Approach to Globalization, and a summary of the paper is on the American Prospect website, and the full paper is on my blog, com. All
3: right. Thanks for joining us, Jared, and we'll be right back.
2: Hey, and we're back. Joined now with Arthur Delaney. is here. And fresh from Michigan, we have Jonathan Cohn. Happy to be here. I'm very glad you're here. You know, uh, there's been a lot of talk that uh, the media writ large uh, has done a poor job covering one aspect of this election, which is the fact that one of the candidates, Hillary Clinton, has a lot of policies that she's written and presented a few weeks ago when Donald Trump presented his Uh, maternity leave policy he insisted that uh, Hillary did not have a plan like literally just said that and come on it's funny it's funny but this was an environment where that was a kind of safe thing for him to say right Right, right. Jonathan you've now been deep inside the deep deep inside uh, Clinton's Brooklyn redoubt and you've actually talked to the people who are there helping Clinton formulate a policy and present it tell us about this operation
5: yeah, it's... Um, so, I mean, Hillary Clinton is basically... And I really don't think this is an exaggeration, but is basically the wonkiest person ever, at least in modern times, to run for president. I mean, she is a serious student. Po- for better, for worse, I mean, she, she like, loves it. She gets into the details. I mean, even compared to, like, her husband, even compared to, like, Barack Obama, who are pretty kind of wonky yeah, presidents. Yeah, they go, very you know, much so. Really very fluent in policy. She loves this stuff, and... When she, you know, left the State Department and was, uh, you know, preparing to run for president, she's like, okay, I want to, you know, I ran for president in 2008. She had a very detailed agenda back then. And she said, but, you know, I know the world has changed. I want to get up to speed and, you know, I want to have a new agenda that reflects what's different in the world eight years later. Right. And so she hires uh, an in-house staff of of a bunch of very, you know, fairly youngish, but, you know, experienced policy advisor type, you know, people had worked in the White House, or whatever. And they in turn, and, and you know, they're a big part of her operation now in Brooklyn at the headquarters. And if you go there, you can tell, I mean, it just, you know, visually, you walk into the headquarters, they are sitting right there next to the campaign manager next to communication staff, they are literally kind of Physically in the middle of the operation, the I mean, wonks but, and the nerds. Oh yeah, with their, like, with their binders. Yes, yes, wonks and nerds. You know, it was funny. Trump at one point, he like I, this is a couple months ago. He gave an interview. He's like, oh yeah, you know, Clinton. She's got all these people sitting in cubicles. You know, churning out policy. And you know, you know, what's the point of that? And actually, he's right. They all they they, they do sit in cubicles. There's like one office for like, <laughs> but the rest right. of them are in cubicles. And it's got like a little sign above it that says, you know, nerds for the win. You know, and huh. and um, but then they in turn sort of manage this giant. Giant operation of uh, the, these working groups they set up and really like brought in they tried to find you know the sort of smartest people out there for every policy area you know they didn't ask me I'm but you know, I'm a journalist they wouldn't <laughs> ask me anyway so I, I was a little insulted now uh, they um they uh you know uh, big academics researchers and did these seminar I mean it really was like a big giant college seminar and you know that you can say this is a good thing a bad thing maybe she's too immersed in the details whatever but What you can't say is that she doesn't take this stuff seriously. And, you know, just one story. There's a guy named Raj Shetty who's an economist at Stanford. And if you follow, like, inequality, he's like the dude, right? I mean, he, you know, he's like— Big cheese. Yeah, he's like LeBron James of, you know, (laughs) inequality study right now. He's doing all the really cool stuff. And they brought him in to do, like, a presentation on his research. And he's going through his PowerPoints, you know. He's—and this is what I—you know, we did this big survey. He's got this giant team at Stanford— and he starts talking about this program that the federal government had started in the 1990s. You guys might know it, Moving to Opportunity. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many of our listeners know yeah. it. But, you know, it was a kind of a, this neat idea where you basically take people in low-income neighborhoods and you give them a chance to go move to some, a more affluent neighborhood, and then you follow them. You know, do they do better in the job market? Do they get do their kids do better? And the initial research on this was that the program really didn't do much. But Shetty went back and he, using some new data that they didn't have before, they were able to show it actually did make a big difference for some people, at least. You know, it's kind of promising. Anyway, he's going through this and Clinton's like, wow, you know, I remember this from the 90s and starts talking about it. And Shetty, you know, I interviewed him. He's like, you know, I don't, most politicians wouldn't be at that level of detail and having followed this for 15, 20 years. And that was kind of indicative of her interest in this stuff.
8: So Jonathan Cohn, you wrote about this in the long piece for Huffington Post Highline, which is like our... Magazine and part of your one thing you point out is that the the way that the Clinton campaign is going on policy reflects a sort of change in the consensus among liberal policy wonks in a a new direction to talk about that uh,
5: shift you went about the wonk wars.
8: Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, we got
5: the Roosevelt
8: Institute is uh, throwing its weight around and there's, uh, you know, renewed skepticism of some aspects of free trade. And part of this is is reflects the Bernie Sanders political phenomenon. But it's also got an academic side where
5: proponents of these more liberal ideas are. Resurgent, Right, right. So, I mean, if you go back and it's, it's useful, I think, to really kind of put it, you know, if we think of a time frame here, think about when Bill Clinton first ran for president in the early 90s, which is also when Hillary Clinton... You know, it's first coming into public life. And since that time, if, if, you, if you're sort of in the part of the universe where the Democratic Party operates, so, you know, the liberal, to center kind of universe, I mean, there's basically been this ongoing argument among intellectuals about how to think about the economy. And to kind of simplify it a lot, but, you know, it works. There's sort of two camps. You have your kind of centrist camp and you have your liberal camp. And so, you know, the liberals, they're the ones who are really, really focused on inequality. They're really focused on the fact that, you know, the economy may be growing, but poor middle class people, they're not getting ahead. Right. Um, And and early on, even back in the 90s, you know, they're like, God, you know, we worry about these trade agreements. What are they going to do to kind of manufacturing NAFTA, NAFTA. You know, getting China into the World Trade Organization, right? And you know, they really want the kind of government to get in there and be very aggressive about okay, you know, let's raise the minimum wage, let's 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 help out labor unions, let's have programs to support all these people. And if we have to spend a lot of government money, that's fine. We'll raise taxes on the rich. You know, that's that's the liberal view. The centrist view is, you know centrist uh, at least when the Democratic Party you know certainly they care about poverty they care about inequality but they're like you know those trade deals they're, they're really a good deal at the end of the day you know they make the economy grow faster we can kind of lay off business don't regulate it too much just let the economy grow everyone will benefit uh, you know we want to have a social a strong safety net but we're, we're low we know we really worry about too much government spending we don't want taxes to get too high we're freaked out by the deficit and that argument kind of played out back and forth you know since the 90s and really during Clinton's presidency the, the centrist really won basically right. partly because bill couldn't get anything you know progressive through congress anyway and you know we saw that to some extent at the beginning of the obama administration also um and what has happened though is intellectually you know we have these new studies now like that guy we were talking about earlier but this guy david otter i actually don't know how to pronounce it otter do you guys know oh, mit man. economist don't he, do this oh man i'm sorry i know <laughs> this this guy at mit you know he's there an economist <laughs> and he did these very important studies on trade and found out like oh, gosh, you know what, you know, trade may actually make the economy grow faster, but it really hammers these communities where you used to have factories and, and, you know, and such. And uh, a lot of, you know, new studies showing that inequality was much, much worse than we thought. And so that has sort of the, you know, you combine that with the fact that basically Wall Street, you know, and this and then centrists were very big on Wall Street, you know, let, let Wall Street do its thing, it'll improve investment, whatever. Oh, how did that work out? Yeah, not, not too well, right? <laughs> sort of hit the skids a little bit, yeah. 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 And so, you know, that has shifted the center of gravity. And now, so you have the situation where the kind of liberal economists are have a lot more credibility, I think, among, you know, Washington types than they used to. And the more centrist economists sound like the liberal economists. I mean, the kind of, the one way to tell is there's a guy named Jared Bernstein, and you know if you're any wonks listening, we're like, oh, Jared Bernstein. I know who he is. He was Vice President. I, Biden. I think I
8: think the uh, podcast listeners might be that's familiar me. with yeah. it. Yeah. 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 yeah, Jared.
5: Also, he's a musician. you know, yeah, like yeah. Accomplished musician yeah. on the side, not relevant to this. Uh, but uh, you know, Jared is a liberal economist. He Biden appointed him. Yeah, that's right. Him, yeah. right. Yeah. And he, you know, he told me the story. He's like, you know, when I was in the Obama White House, he's like, you know, a lot of times I'd go in and I'd be like six, seven people arguing against me. You know, and uh, now he's like he's on these conference calls because he does advise the Clinton campaign. He's like, we're all saying the same thing. And they all sound kind of like, you know, I did. And he's not trying to brag. I mean, it's not because of him. But, I mean, that's true. I mean, the conversation is now much more, you know, among even in the establishment, if you want to call it that, much more in favor of liberal solutions than what it used to be.
2: Is there anything in particular because you spent some time uh with the policy team. Is there anything in particular that maybe people don't know that is an exciting idea they've had?
5: Yeah, I mean, a lot. I mean, I'll, I'll, so here's one. I mean, uh, the, the thing about Hillary Clinton and her agenda, and this is a weakness and it's a strength, is that it's full of ideas. And it's so full of so many different ideas, there's like not one easy theme you can unite it under. and And I think you know, people watching the campaign when they, you know, most people aren't going to get into the policy papers. And so, you know, what they want is they want to sort of take away a kind of message from it. And that message isn't always clear from her stuff. And that's a problem. They got to fix that. I I think politically, it's a problem. The flip side is there are some neat ideas. You know, here's one on college loans. Everyone knows she has this program for you know, to improve, you know, get a lot more assistance. She actually updated it with, you know, Bernie Sanders. Debt-free college is the, the slogan right, for right. it. Yeah. Yes. That's that's the phrase. And, and, and you know, doesn't get a lot of, you know, notice. It would actually be arguably the single biggest federal commitment to higher education since, you know, the GI Bill. GI Bill yeah. yeah, huge. And, yeah. you know, whatever. People don't know. But even within that initiative, there's a tiny little part of it that, you know, I think is kind of neat, which is that, because she doesn't – who knows what she can get through Congress, right? But she would issue an executive order basically having a three-month moratorium on loan repayments. And then they would couple it with outreach. And the idea is that there's all these programs out there right now. Most – you know, and you have your outstanding college loans. There's all kinds of programs out there to refinance. You know, to get, you know, you know, and most people don't know about these. So give everyone like a three month pause in paying your bills. Get them the information. Say, look, here are the federal programs that are out there. Here are the state programs that are out there. You might be able to lower your payments. And there's actually a lot of money people could save. And that is a little tiny thing, but, you know, very emblematic of how they're kind of really beating the bushes to find what can we do big if we can't get stuff through Congress, what can we do that's small. You know, and I look at that and I think, you know what? People will be—that will help. That's a real thing right. she could do as president. That would actually help people.
2: but it's not creating a new government program nope. or government spending. It's just pre- creating sort of a frictionless environment where people can obtain information they should have been able to obtain more easily all the, all along. Exactly. Yeah, it's a good idea, my friend. All right, well, um, I encourage people to read Jonathan Cohn's uh, piece on Highline. It's very deep and detailed, and it is, yes— the media covering clinton policy um so enjoy that for everyone who's been starved for it we did it we did it we did it yeah hooray for us and hooray for you uh john thanks for being on the show it's great to have you in the office and arthur it's always nice to be here and i thank you for having me i think i'm great too people can disagree we will be right back
8: Okay, so you you write Huff Post Hill. I do. Start with that. All right. This book is, in a sense, an outgrowth Extension. of of the newsletter. Right. That you that you're the writer. We could talk about. You should tell why I decided to write it.
1: Yeah. We could maybe talk about
8: how it fits into this terrible, terrible political world of ours. Um, Sean Hannity said that you know. Expensive wine liberals are hypocritically criticizing him. This week we talk about like expensive wine liberals. Sure,
2: I'm,
8: we're going to be fine. Okay. I think we'll be good. Just want to have organized. I think I think we do way better when we are mildly organized.
2: I've actually prepared for this interview.
8: Yeah. Oh, okay. No, Jason, Jason is internalized. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm not going to say much. It's okay. Jason's, Jason has a plan.
2: I don't have... I mean, I am i don't... I'm not...
8: Uh, I just... I'll just blow my brains out. Oh Jason will handle what? everything. What
2: am I doing wrong here?
8: <laughs> Nothing. Right. I'm, just, I'm just busting your balls. I forgot uh. how this works. I've only done this once. It's easy. No, it works. I feel like I guessed oh, it I can't something. hear you.
2: Hold on, hold on, hold on. So aren't we supposed to get way up on the mics this week?
8: Yes. You need to be really like almost kissing right. that windscreen. Okay.
2: You don't have to lean into it. You can actually
8: pull the mic. You can pull the mic close to you. Can I, I do, can't hear you. Just be Christine. way way up. Can I do my movie guy voice? Wait, can Absolutely. you hear Christine? No. I can't hear anything. I hear nothing. Through the window, but not Turn your knobs up. No, I'm no, not, not hearing no. anything. Not, no. I heard a little buzzing. What? Oh, wait, oh, wait, 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 wait. Monitor mute. <laughs> what about now? What about now? Nope, nope, nope. One
1: fox will jump over one Brown fence no, In a world The fox is brown
8: This summer Can you guys it, hit me? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Did I blow your eyes out? Mm, it's okay um, I'm only getting one one side Yeah, is that it's normal? only left ear All right Poop, poop, poop. No, it's not normal But well, I'm having the same issue Oh, maybe because Mono? Poop, 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 poop. Oh, now I'm getting both That's yeah, nice I fixed it right. One man oh, I fixed that one One book in a one world. time This summer
1: Dakota Fanning is The Beltway Bible
2: You ever really gonna trust Dakota Fanning with that role?
8: I mean, at the very least she can play like the letter Have we talked about C. how they keep making movies about just
1: crap that I, happened? I think it's an L role I mean, I was kind of hoping that Danny Glover could okay. play L but Okay, so we have levels, so we're ready to start Alright, yeah, let's do it
2: Uh pooh, pooh. Let's talk. I'll do a cheesy introduction. Yeah, You've let's done do this it. Before. <clears throat> Hi, we are back, and I'm joined with uh, joined by rather Arthur Delaney. Hey, and uh, we have a very special guest today. You know, we here on the show we've uh, we've made a real concerted effort to go out and seek authors from hither and yon to come and talk about their books. But this week, we actually just like turned to the guy sitting next to us. At our desk, we have the Huffington Post's own Elliot Nelson. He is the primary writer of the HuffPost Hill newsletter and the author of the new book, The Beltway Bible: Colon, a totally serious A to Z guide to our no good, corrupt, incompetent, d- terrible, depressing, and sometimes hilarious government. Elliot, thanks you for being here. And and yes, a good a good political book is one of those with a colon in the title.
1: Yeah. Uh, can I share a secret with you guys? Yeah. Show yes. them all. I, I haven't memorized the title. Oh. I've been working on this for 16 months and I
8: still haven't actually committed it. You to should memory. just get
2: a, why don't you come up with a mnemonic device right. for this? That's, yeah. that's
8: what Ted Cruz would do. That's exactly yeah. what Ted
2: Be more like Ted Cruz. So, okay, Elliot. Yeah. Why did you want to write this book, man?
1: I wanted to write this book because this was sort of the book I wanted to read when I first came to Washington. Um... There are a lot of tremendous political books out there, ones about specific lawmakers, some about policy, others about that are campaign TikToks. But if you want like kind of an introduction to politics, you're sort of limited to the stale textbooks you had in college. And anyone serious about politics should take those classes and read those textbooks. But there isn't really a book, I think, that introduces politics both in telling you how it works but also kind of telling you how it feels uh, without getting too Jill stein on you. Um, <laughs> no, and, that's fair. And I, and that's sort of what I, I try to set out to do. Um, not only mixing entries with things like how bills are passed but also giving you a sense that people who work both on the stage and behind the scenes in politics are flesh and blood humans who are filled with, you know, flesh and blood blood problems and ambitions and shortcomings and this, that, and the other.
8: So the book is a glossary and it's full of jokes, but you actually did some reporting to put this together. To tell us about that. Yeah, I
1: mean, I, um, you know, I did do some original reporting on it. I, I, I spoke to dozens, if not hundreds, of, of folks for it, sometimes as small as just fact-checking. Like, hey, I literally had to reach out to someone to ask how people in— um, Uh, uh, Rockefeller Center, NBC, where they eat their lunch, um, to larger things like how do you actually go about lobbying for a bill? Um, And I think uh, those discussions really, I think, help fill the book with some good color. But I think, frankly, even more important than that is just that this is a book where all this stuff is in there in the same place. Um, And I think that if there is a sort of niche, it fills is is that
2: I have to say when 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 you started working on this book and you were just sort of like talking about the general contours of the idea of this book, you know, in my head, there are a million ways I thought this could go. This could be something that was like America, the book or uh, like the devil's dictionary uh, sort of sort of thing. But what. Strikes me about this is that the density is really, really impressive without being oppressive. Um, you get it really deep into the weeds and explain, some complicated things, things that we don't think of as complicated, like how a
8: bill actually gets made. Can could, just could clarify: the book is long.
2: It is a long book. It is right. a long book. It is that's long, spend, what you mean by I, density.
8: Yeah, yeah. So it, you it, could really no, slam it, this into someone's head.
2: Okay, you could, you could. It would probably hurt. But, but the, but it is, it is packed with information, is what I mean. I mean, yeah. and you do an expe- incredibly admirable job. Detailing uh, the the workings of these uh, financial groups, these super PACs, these 501s, uh, great detail on this. How How is that world delving into? Because that's complicated for anyone to talk
1: about. Well, one thing I learned pretty quickly when talking about f- campaign finance is it's a subject that even campaign finance experts are still trying to get a grip on. Uh, you ask one person in that field what the divide is that... A, uh, a 501c4 or a, a political nonprofit can contribute to politics as opposed to quote unquote educational activity. And you might actually get three or four different answers. Yeah. Um, and so I think the, a big challenge was g- getting into the weeds enough so that folks could sort of see the warts and blemishes and the, if anything, the sort of the the ambiguities of a lot of the, of these things. Um, one area, uh, I think that I go after pretty strongly along with campaign finance is just the world of lobbying. And I think that was one where I wanted to try and get deeper than just the traditional narrative of everyone in Washington is a sellout.
2: What, I, w- I want to just leave on this question because uh, this book, in addition to just being a really good companion of how the federal government works and and who the major players are, you also kind of like describe D.C. both in and out – in within and without the government culturally – Uh, One of the things that you you kind of really express is that we're we're a city that everyone complains about the status quo in their words and then their deeds that kind of nurture it. But what is D.C.? What have you taken away from this uh, in terms of like what is this larger culture like?
1: Well, I think for better and for worse, I think D.C. is a much more human place than I think we might gleam from CNN or the West Wing or House of Cards. Um, that can be good and bad. I think the, a lot of the problems that arise from that are very recognizable. Um, but I think on the flip side of that, it's it's a city where incestuousness and a sort of clubbiness, despite uh, uh, some whining and moaning about it being – too hostile and too partisan these days there is actually kind of a, a clubbiness that prevails uh, beneath the surface and i think it, it it and it's a very human kind of clubbiness but it's a clubbiness nonetheless and i, I think that is something that people need to kind of uh, get a better grip on
2: all right elliot thank you for joining us you can read elliot every single day by subscribing to the Huff Post Hill newsletter, which you should do right this very second. Then you can go to the bookstore and purchase the Beltway Bible, a totally serious A-Z to guide to our no good, corrupt, incompetent, terrible, depressing, and sometimes hilarious government. Obviously, like we've already said, you must first purchase a toilet right. to to have so you can read this. You'll need to eat some food. You'll need to eat food, digest the food, go to the bathroom, digest the book, right? That'll make you hungry. The cycle repeats. Circle of life.
1: You could say it's brain food.
2: Oh. Very very well done. (laughs) Just like a good piece of halibut, this book is brain food. Um, Please go out and buy it and uh, give it to someone you love as a stocking stuffer at Christmas. All right. Thank you. We will be right back.
8: We're back. This is Arthur Delaney. I'm here with my friend, Jason Lincolns. Hi, friend. And we have a very special guest, the creator of Pepe the Frog, Matt Fury. Matt, thank you so much for being here. Hello, world. (laughs) All right. (laughs) This guy's fired up. So Pepe the Frog is a green frog that you may have seen on the Internet this week. The Anti-Defamation League added Pepe to its list of online hate symbols.
7: Matt, what happened? Well, you know, I'd just like to set the record straight and say that Pepe is, in fact, not a hate symbol. So we can just get that out of the way.
8: <laughs> okay. So Pepe's existed for, like, 15 years. And it's a uh, an online cartoon that you did. You also made it into a zine. And Pepe, like, lives with a group of roommates. And it's called Boys Club. And there's, you know, nothing Hitler or Nazi about
7: it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 the furthest from that you could ever imagine. It's just a bunch of lazy dudes kind of living under one roof and they're animals and they just kinda of pull pranks on each other and get drunk and stuff
8: like that. And so <laughs> and so but between then and now Pepe has became an internet meme that was popular with everybody. Um and and uh you've described him as someone who just is relatable, you know, he can be happy or sad, and then the alt right comes along and starts using him for pro-Trump and anti-Semitic purposes. What was it like when that started happening for you?
7: Well, you know, needless to say, it was totally weird and, you know, totally goes against any of of my philosophies or my spiritual beliefs. Uh, You know, I think that we are all one love and, uh, you know, we should all uh, just, you know, life is short. We should be celebrating uh, peace, love, brotherhood, and uh you know, ecology and the future of mankind.
2: This, this is one of those, how on earth do we come to this point kind of stories? Uh, Because it's, it's, it's so random and it's, it seems, it's, it seems almost like almost too perfect because this has been like a crazy, crazy meme election. And it's been a election more steeped in stupid viral entertainment than anything else. But Matt, how do, what do, how do people how do people respond to you now? I mean, you, I, this I, this can't be good.
7: I think the real fans of Pepe are, are the youth of America, and in fact, Pepe is, is very popular internationally. Of, you know, I'm pretty famous in China, in Korea, in Australia. You know, so Pepe is kind of transcends kind of what's going on in the election right now. And in fact, it's, it's very strange to be talking to you or any, anyone uh, can, about Pepe as, as being like pertinent to the election you know it's, it's definitely um i see it as a distraction and uh, you know we really should be focusing on some some more um positive things and, and actually you know moving on to sustainable energy or you know yeah. um, equal rights for equal pay for everybody you know all that kind of stuff so you know like everything in this election is just kind of a circus sideshow or something it's just a big distraction
8: so you believe that Internet memes and the, and the way they're used, it, it moves fast enough that the, that Pepe will not be remembered forever as, like, this uh, Nazi frog that he's used as by alt-right people.
7: Yeah, exactly. You know, I think, it, I think the whole Nazi thing kind of started, although, you know, it's totally lame and hateful and, and discriminating and, you know, it's just terrible stuff. But, you know, I, don't, I think it started off as just some kind of troll joke. And, uh, you know, has moved on to, to this kind of alt-right thing. And, and honestly, I have just heard about the alt-right. I don't even know what the hell they stand for, nor do I really care. It just seems uh, pretty dumb and, like, seems like, you know, if you're listening out there and you're racist, what's wrong?
8: <laughs> I'm not sure we have a lot of racist listeners. Yeah, we might not Yeah, we might not be speaking <laughs> to the most racist part of society. Yeah,
2: yeah we've, we've really kind of let our, our content to racist people die on the vine. Um you you've mentioned you've mentioned uh, that like you get you you have kids all over the country who who want to use Pepe and including some that ask permission ask your permission which I think is which I think is really which is which is great it's very polite and, and, and proper uh, that they ask you for permission do you think that we need a youth movement to reclaim Pepe from the bad people who have sullied him yeah
7: absolutely I think we this culture a grassroots youth movement online so uh you know if you believe in pepe as just being kind of a uh a cool frog dude that you like to share with your friends and you think he's cute and you um obviously don't support all this kind of like uh, election politics that pepe got wrapped into then yeah help me out guys take it take him back do
8: you, do you wish the anti-defamation leave hadn't given pepe its stamp of disapproval
7: yeah i think they. Jump the gun on that one. I mean, to, to lump Pe- generically, Pepe the Frog is being uh, similar to a swastika or a burning cross or any of that other nonsense. Um, you know, I just think they kind of rushed to do that because of um, you know, whatever's going on in politics right now to kind of support Hillary's claim that Pepe is in fact mostly used by white supremacists when in fact it's mostly used by this like kids on the internet. So, um, yeah, I think it's just a phase. And, you know, once uh, once this election is over with, and uh, hopefully once Hillary gets elected, this will just be another strange Chapter for the the internet life of a frog.
8: All right, Matt (laughs) Matt Matt Fury, the creative pepe, the creator of Pepe the Frog. Thank you so much for being with us. Now, really quickly, where is Pepe going next?
7: Well, Pepe is actually going to be a uh, stuffed animal soon that may or may not be anatomically correct.
8: So look for that. Oh no! Doesn't he also have some sartorial adventures coming up? Uh, What kind of adventures? Clothes. Isn't he going to go on some on on a shirt? Oh
7: yeah, and also uh, yeah, we've got an official Pepe clothing line uh, that's out for teenage teenage. Um, their website
8: is BoredTeenager.com. dot dot com. So you got your Pepe merchandise. Keep your eyes peeled for the anatomically correct Pepe. Uh, and, and bored teenagers
2: take Pepe back from the terrible people who've, who've appropriated him. Yeah, I'm begging you. There's
8: nothing inherently wrong. With this cartoon frog. Thank you so much for being with us, Matt Fury.
2: Matt, we really appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Good talking
8: with you. All right. Bye-bye. We'll be right back.
2: So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we were joined by Jared Bernstein of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, Pepe the Frog creator, Matt Fury, I bet those two never thought they'd be on a show together, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Jonathan Cohn, Arthur Delaney, Elliot Nelson, and Lauren Weber. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes com slash sothathappened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to happened at huffingtonpost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already.